0: Well, my people, if you have been with us the last two weeks, you know we're starting a new little liturgy, we'll call it, for our Ephesians series, all about union and unity. Paul begins his letter to the saints, and how are we beginning our worship? To the saints, saints. that's right, greetings, say hello, St. Grace, hello, St. Richard, hello, St. Albert, say, seriously, get comfortable with it, it's weird, it's awkward, but we need to get more comfortable and confident in our identity as saints. We're going to actually keep teasing it out. How do the saints greet each other? Anybody remember? And it, People are like, I came here for a sermon, not a pop quiz. Thank you, though, you're paying attention. Grace and peace. If you, have, if you don't know whatever to say to anybody, just say grace and peace. Yeah, you'll be weird. Yeah, but that's okay. You're already weird. to Be weird for Jesus. Like, if you don't know what else to say to people, seriously, think about them as a saint. Somebody chosen, holy, blameless, and upright, standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and wish them grace and peace. Think about how lives could be changed, how communities could be changed, how the world could be changed with that simple direction in life to see one another as saints and to wish grace and peace upon everyone. Well, that's what kicks off Ephesians. That's going to, uh, in a sense, be the trajectory for the next several weeks as we continue to go through it. Today, we're gonna go deeper into it. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. It's a long passage, and I'm gonna get you to participate as always. So pay attention for your moments whenever you will repeat things from God's word, with all of God's people. We're going to jump right in, though. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, I'm resisting the urge to re-preach the past 2 weeks' sermons. So (laughs) just keep everything in mind from the past two weeks. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Oh, you know, we'll be coming back to that one there. I pray that the eyes of your heart, <coughs> excuse me, maybe, <coughs> excuse me again, may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope. Somebody say the hope. That's right, the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance. Say, his glorious inheritance. inheritance. I like the inflection. Very good. I'm very happy right now. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable. Incomparably, what a great word. Incompar. No, no, oh, sorry, sorry. Incomparably great power. That's the one. Great power. Say power. Power for us who believe. Now the rest of this is just going to be kind of one of Paul's spontaneous, it would seem, outpourings of praise as he now thinks about the power that we have through Jesus Christ. So hold this next section together in your mind. But we're going to unpack this in today's message. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Woo! Hallelujah and amen. God's word is good. Uh, It has been said, let me ask this, are there any nuclear physicists in the room? Oh, please don't let there be any. Oh, uh, there is. I I actually gave an example um, uh, from nuclear physics once and a guy came up to me. And he was a nuclear physicist, so I was quite humbled. Woo, all right, because I'm not good on the science. It has been said that the 20th century was the century of the atom because we began to recognize the power held within the atomic bonds that literally hold the atoms, the molecules, the protons, the electrons, the neurons the whatever I don't know it's been a long time again I'm not a physicist I'm, I'm a theologian uh arguably and but we recognized the power there so they began to experiment what could happen with nuclear fission or fusion and smart people bright people were quite concerned about it of course they're wondering you know if you actually split an atom and it divided and then hit two others could it set off a chain reaction that could instantaneously dissolve the very fabric of the universe. As we know, these were not just, you know, sort of nincompoops. These were bright people wondering about what would be unleashed. Of course, the experiments began. Um, the uh, hope or the nightmare, we know, in many ways, came to fruition on August 12, 1945, dropping an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. It is said that the power of that was so great I just learned this recently in my study this week. That was so great that they had 10 kilograms of uranium on that bomb, but only a pea-sized portion of it was actually activated to make that atomic explosion. The power was almost inconceivable and unimaginable. While we know that in many ways we harness the power of the atom, and nuclear power has driven a lot of the 20th century, in the 80s people got really excited about cold fusion and the possibility that, and this is why I brought this up to drink it, yes, but also to say cold fusion, that if we could somehow unleash The power of the atomic energy, the molecular bonds to release them, that a city like Denver could theoretically be powered for days, weeks, months on end. After years and years of experimentation, of course, many think that it is a a, a pipe dream. Um, But people continue to push on to try and release the power of this atomic energy. Who here followed the CERN-Hadron Collider? Anybody? 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 All right, no real, Oh, you did. You nerd. I knew. I was I was actually waiting for you to say yeah. I was kind of really into that when it was happening. It has been a billion dollar waste I read recently. So, for now like a decade, they've been trying to get these particles to collide in the hadron um, CERN, what is it? The, uh, the European Center for Nuclear Research, you know. And they 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 just Can't do it. But God love them. They're still trying. They're still trying to collide those particles to create another big bang, to destroy the world. No, they're trying to unleash the power within. Okay, keep that all in mind. This quote has gone around for years now. It seems to captivate people's imagination. So I wanted to read it for you this morning. I'm thinking that most people here have heard it. It's a woman named um, Marianne Williamson, and in one of her books she wrote this. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. That's what made me think of this quote that's gone around so often. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Now hear her out. Here's what she says. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us the most. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, to be gorgeous, to be talented? Actually, who are you not to be? (laughs) You are a child. I I guess I want to like preach it in preacher mode. You are a child of God. You got to look, you are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that people won't feel insecure around you. You were made to make manifest the glory of God that is within you. It's not just in some of us, it's in all of us. And when we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Is she right? Is she on to something? Yes, I know there are some people that are deeply um, insecure and fearful and plagued with shame and guilt. and where you can, you, There's whole messages and sermons and good news to preach to all that. But are many of us maybe actually being held back by an unconscious sort of unwillingness to truly step into the glory of God and allow it to be manifest through our lives to let our light shine? As she said, are we holding Back the power of God. This is what Ephesians has actually been inviting us to. to Step into the power of union with Jesus Christ. And to make manifest that glory in our lives. And then as he gets into and as we will be unpacking again for several weeks. So we don't have to fully develop this idea just yet. But then that idea is when you are in union with Jesus Christ. And his power and his glory is at work for your life. Your life then collides with others who put their life in Jesus and it starts to divide and grow and it grows and grows. And that's why I kind of picked that idea of that illustration. What if we, in a sense, keep dividing, not in division, in discord, in disunity but we keep growing and multiplying colliding with others releasing this powerful work of God through our lives into the lives of others, into the community oh friends, this is what Paul has been unpacking for us let's just not make this stuff up Let's go back to God's word and say, well, what is God's word telling us about who we are in the power of God? We have already been told in those first 14 verses that one glorious, long outpouring of praise that we are children of God, right? That we have been chosen before the foundation of creation, that you were predestined to be adopted into sonship in the family of God, that God has a plan that is working out in and through your life, that you have redemption not by a sacrifice on an altar, but by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and we now stand in his righteousness. We have now been sealed by the Holy Spirit, a seal. Marking us, guaranteeing us, a deposit invested in us, intended to grow, intended to grow and multiply and work itself out in our lives, in our ministries, in our families, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, in our church, and all these things growing this deposit, growing up in us. This is the power that is at work in our lives, friends. And Paul has to give thanks to God for it and to pray for more of it to be worked out in our lives. That is going to be the meat here of what we're going to go into. Let me just take that step back, which I always do, to say let's make sure we're in the Bible, understanding what it's telling us, what it's teaching us, so that we can stand on a sure foundation. Let me just say a couple points about it, but then I want to spend some time digging into the meat of what he is praying for on behalf of the Ephesians, and I want to pray for it on our behalf. He's going to pray for their hope to be growing He's praying for the inheritance to grow in them. And he's praying for power to grow in and through their lives. So we're going to be talking about hope. We're going to be talking about inheritance. And we're going to be talking about power. But he sets the stage with this great thing. The first thing is he just says, I I just can't stop praying and giving thanks for you. And there's something to be learned from that. That he just can't stop praying for them. Unceasing prayer. That is the hope of the Christian life. That our Life is, in a sense, a living, perpetual prayer to God. Prayer being a relationship, a conversation, an ongoing communication with God. So many quotes about prayer are out there, uh, and, and they all are edifying and have things to teach us. I mean, Martin Luther was very famous for talking about, you know, I have so much on my plate, I'm so busy now that I have to spend my first three hours in prayer or it won't get done. And you're like, that's exactly the opposite of how I work in life. I should take heed to that and cover everything with prayer. One of my favorite, I was reminded of it this week because my daughter Karis is off at YWAM and doing her training, and she got assigned to read uh, Celebration of Discipline. And I just have to say, I'm so glad they assigned that. I'm so glad they're still assigning some of the classics. Um, In Celebration of Discipline, one of my favorite quotes about prayer appears. Foster just has this insight: want to pray all the time everywhere we got to pray sometime somewhere and i just think that's such a brilliant insight that we have this lofty goal of praying all the time everywhere that grows that becomes manifest and real in our lives if we pray sometime somewhere and so i encourage you like paul to pray sometime somewhere (laughs) pray sometime somewhere make Prayer, that important. Maybe if you take nothing else from today, and today's gonna to be one of those sermons where I'm gonna be like three times, I'll be like, take this away from this. But pray, become that people of prayer and follow your prayers. Pay attention to your prayers. I'm going to tell a little story. My wife, uh, she donates her body to science all the time. Um, not atomic experiments, but she is in this one, like putting eye drops in that is, uh, that's supposed to like correct your vision. Unfortunately, she was in the placebo group, but I think they approved it. And now you can put eye drops in and you can, it's like putting on reading glasses except their eye drops. She's in another study. And a part of this study, uh, she gets paid for it, by the way. So I didn't just say that. She's not just, she's just that into science. So, um, And and part of it is she has to kind of keep a journal and monitor her pain. Very interesting. I think a lot of us could relate to this. At first, it was like, well, I don't feel any pain because we don't like to pay attention to pain, right? We try to ignore the pain. We try to dissolve the pain. We want to run away from the pain. But she she had to, for the study, pay attention to the pain. So at first, she was like, oh, I don't have any pain. And then it's like, when you start to pay attention to it, it's like, oh man, I have pain all the time. Oh man, my knees hurt, my back hurts, my head, like like everything hurts. Then when you pay attention to it, like, oh my goodness, these bodies are wasting away. But then she got specific and she got better at being like, "Mm, I'm having pain here. I'm having pain in this area. I'm having pain at this time of day. She got very specific. She paid attention to the pain and what it was telling her about what her body was going through. Uh, I, I need to do some of that, I think, in my own life at my age now. But we need to pay attention to our prayers. Because we can direct our, par- our prayers. We can grow in our prayers. We can, believe it or not, get better at prayer. Do you think about prayer as something you can get better at, right? <laughs> like, like we think, sometimes we think it's like one of those things, like we should just be like gifted and natural. and should be. No, we, we can pay attention to our prayers. Paul pays attention to his prayers and he writes about his prayers. I'm resisting the urge to get to the end of chapter three. That's the one that's gonna really be about prayer. But he is telling us right now to pay attention to our prayers and make sure our prayers are perhaps characterized by gratitude more than anything else. So here's kind of the takeaway. Here's a bit of the work for us this week. Are your prayers, you know, lifting up for yourself? You know, I want this, I want that, I want anything. Are your prayers lifted up for others? Are your prayers actually curses on other people? (laughs) Are your prayers asking for blessings on other people? Pay attention to your prayers and begin to train your spirit. Uh, We we get into that when we study the Psalms. The psalmist is always directing his spirit. He's directing his heart to her heart. He's directing the inner life towards the glory of God and giving thanks and praise so pay attention to where your prayers naturally go and then encourage them to go in the direction of giving thanks and honor and glory to God. The other thing I want to point out here is when you get to verse 17, if you like have a study Bible, if you're an old school note taker and you have little, I, I, I say this because in seminary you get trained to like keep little notes and, and I, I'll, you'll find little triangles all over my, my, my study notes. Anybody know why I would have a triangle? guesses? Any guesses? Any guesses? The Trinity there. Um, this is like the most Trinitarian verse ever. 17. He's praying to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the Spirit to, become, to show himself to the people in, in Ephesians for more wisdom and revelation. Like once you look for it um, and you see it, you just begin to see the evidence of our triune God of grace and glory working itself out. Throughout all of Scripture. I'm surprised, but I certainly do encounter that the Trinity can be... uh, It it just seems to sometimes raise controversy or raise discussion. Uh, I'm not here to settle all those debates, except to say it does seem evident from the revelation of Scripture that God is so glorious that it is helpful to put this hanger to help us understand, again, God is so big, God is so God, that God is Father, the glorious Father, The Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit working in and through our lives. So just recognize that great work of God in our lives. The triune God of grace is how Paul begins his prayer and his thanks to the people. And then the last thing is that he says, and this is really the heart of it. The heart of his prayer, more than anything else, what does he want for the people in Ephesus what would he want for us? What do I want for you as your pastor? What should we want for ourselves? What should we want for all people to know about him more? No, wait. Does it say to know about him? What does it say? To know him. Just, just pause on that for a moment with me. Oh, you want me to know him? I thought that Christian life was just information, right? I I just study the Bible. I get more information packed in here. Nothing wrong with that. Information is great. Seminary is cool. Bible studies are wonderful. Get information. I am not a not information guy. (laughs) Get information about Jesus. But Paul here is saying something so profoundly and deeply different. I know about Paul, but my people, I don't know Paul. I will know him one day, I hope, and I pray, but I don't know him. I know a lot about him. Uh, I, I know a lot about other figures from history. If you're a Civil War buff, you know all about that. If you're a presidential buff, you know all about those histories. Uh, you can know all about people, but this is so much different. That the audacity of his hope and his prayer for the people in Ephesus and for us is that we actually know Jesus Christ. Our faith is about a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And as trite or as trivial as that can sound, as a custom as we've become, I think, in the modern church to say it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship, there is deep truth in that that we are not just working out knowledge. We are working and living into a relationship with God. And really the answer, the end, the all in all is knowing him. I think about old uh, kind of choruses we used to sing, and this one has been going through my head. Carlos, I should have called you and been like, do you know that old one? Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, you're my all, you're the best. See, I'm going to embarrass myself here, but... We should be filled with songs of praise and scriptures that remind us, but we need more than just, again, more information about it, to be living into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, to know him better. I'm not saying this to shame anyone. No, 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 absolutely not. I'm not saying this to heap any guilt on anyone uh, but, but I have to say it, I'm compelled as the preacher, I'm compelled to ask you, do you know him? Or do you just know about him? Have you been living on the edge of a relationship going through the religious motions? Or have you stepped into the abiding relationship, the mysterious union that Paul's inviting us to, to know Jesus better? Just like it takes somebody at some point, usually getting down on their knee. I'm thinking about a wedding that is coming up and the joy in that celebration. At some point in every relationship, you have to step into it and make it real and go deeper and make the covenant and make the bond. At some point in our lives, we have to make that step of faith to go into a relationship of knowing Jesus Christ better in faith, moving towards him, opening up our lives, surrendering all. And that is what it is all about. Because then what Paul is just going to be working out now for the next couple chapters is that really the solution for everything in the life of faith and in life in general is just coming back to Jesus. You got to problem being spiritually dead go to Jesus you got a problem with sin forgiveness go to Jesus you got a problem in a relationship go to Jesus you got a problem needing some more hope go to Jesus you got a problem needing more power go to Jesus. it's just gonna all keep coming back to knowing him better so my people the second time I'm gonna say it now (laughs) if you take nothing else away from this Know him, go to him. It's all about knowing him better. So that's, that, that's, that's like the meat of it. That's what he's gonna be all about, knowing him. But then he's gonna he, he sort of launches into praying for hope and inheritance and power. So let's just talk a little bit about the substance then of, of relationship with Jesus Christ. And it can give us hope, it gives us inheritance and it gives us power. Because remember, we can know about hope. Or we can know hope in Jesus Christ. We can know about inheritance, that is promise, or we can have the inheritance. We can know about power, or we can have power in knowing him. And that's what Paul then simply unpacks for the next couple of verses for us. He says, I want you to know the hope to which you've been called. There is the world's hope, and then there is this hope that we have in and through Jesus Christ. We are hopeful creatures Hopeful creatures all the time, right? And uh, we just need to have hope. The world's hope, uh, you know, right now, students all over are hoping they get accepted into the college or university of their choice. And they're hoping they get the scholarship that will pay for it. And then they're hoping they'll win the lottery because they didn't get the scholarship that's gonna pay, you know, we, we, we're, like, there's this hope that we have in our preferred future. And the Bible actually reflects that kind of hope in many places. In other letters and other places in Paul's writings, he'll speak about hoping to see people in another time, hoping that they will be able to send some things to him that he's asking for, things that, by the way, never came to pass. So he had this sort of general hope in a preferred future that would have been great. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of hope. But he is speaking about a deeper Christian hope, the hope that only comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Uh, Before World War II, uh, there was, as this sort of now told in their whole books about this, three uh, psychiatrists that were sort of competing for the attention and the motivation and understanding the inner workings of the the human soul, the human nature. The one was a man named Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud recognized that we seem to be pleasure-pursuing creatures, so the foundation for a lot of his research was saying we are always trying to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. But the difficult thing that things that needs to be unpacked in that is we seem to be terribly good predictors of what is going to bring us ultimate pleasure and what will cause us to avoid pain. And we actually sabotage our lives in many ways and bring more pain into our lives. Another guy was named... Um, Alfred Aldrich, and his approach was that I think people are actually pursuing power. People feel powerless. They feel that much is out of their control. They feel overwhelmed, and they're always trying to find ways to exert and have power over situations in life. And the other man was named Viktor Frankl. Now, when the Nazis invaded uh, Freud and um, uh, uh, Freud and, and, and Aldrich. Wait, am I saying it right now? I got to write a name. Adler, sorry, Adler. Freud and Adler were already prominent and were able to escape and have freedom. Viktor Frankl was young and only starting out his career and ended up in a concentration camp. For four years, he watched people exist in a world without any pleasure enormous pain. For four years, he watched people have all the power of autonomy over their life, over their decisions, over their choices, just stripped away from them. In the midst of that, he saw some people were able to survive and others, in a sense, just deteriorated, crumbled under the weight of it all. He observed how it was often very surprising that some of the big people, the strong people, the tough guys, tragically, tragically were sometimes the first to break while some of the older people I mean grandparents, great grandparents, invalids even, they seemed to have something that brought them through and so when he got out of the concentration camp, and we know this now he began to focus on hope or the will to hope as he called it, that it was people's hope that brought them through, that they had the hope that they held on to of a better day, of an end to the pain, of a new tomorrow. They held on to that hope and people that were able to hold on to hope were able to overcome the most awful, the most degrading, the most horrific Holocaust of the human experiences that could be endured because they held on to to the hope. And this is the hope that Jesus Christ is inviting us into. Yes, we're gonna talk about some things about pleasure and we're certainly gonna talk about some things about power at the end here because he prays for that as well. But my people, it kind of starts with this hope. Hold on to the hope to which you are called in Jesus Christ. We have hope in and through Jesus Christ. Second thing he prays for, our in- inheritance. We have an inheritance in Jesus Christ. Um, Here's the thing. Let me just jump, jump to the end here. What he is saying here is that it's already in you. That's the hook. That's the difference, the thing about this inheritance. It's already in you. Has anybody here ever like, gotten an inheritance? Like, like all of a sudden, like it like was out there and somebody you knew or loved, they passed away. Anybody, if you, if you do, I want to put you in touch with Jane, our finance director. So um, we have these hopes of these out there inheritances coming to us. The hook here is that Paul is saying this inheritance, it's already in you. He already prayed for that whenever he talked about the Holy Spirit being a seal, a deposit in your life. It's already in you. It just makes me think it's like the trope of like every like superhero movie that comes out now. I mean, honestly, it's like Captain Marvel. It's like, oh, it's already in you. You have to just awaken it. Uh, What's that one from Guardian of the Galaxy? Quit. Quill, Quill, is that his name right? You know, like like you actually the son of a God, it's already in you. You know, like the Hulk, it's like already in there. Like like, like, like it's, it's this story that we love. We're always captivated by it. This desire, we, we want to see that it's already in us and it has to come out. The beauty, the joy of the Christian story is it's not a comic book. It's not a fantasy. It's not a superhero movie. It is actually already in you. There is already an inheritance in you that you can begin living out of. You have inherited the righteousness of Christ through faith. You have inherited the glories of eternity through Christ. You have an inheritance in the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Start living into that inheritance. Live into the inheritance that has already been sealed, deposited, invested in you, and let that inheritance then begin to grow. And then what does he say at the end? Then he says, and I pray that you will have power. Uh, the, the, I, I got the chance to preach on power a, a bit several weeks ago when we looked at um, when, uh, Wendy, Wendy's verse about a spirit of power, And uh, discipline and self-control. Power, love, and self-control, right? Is that it? Power, love, and self-control. So there's some thoughts on power from a couple weeks ago. Um, Power is a dirty word in today's world. It's something to recognize. Something for us to process. Something for us to deal with. We have seen the abuses of power, and we are repulsed by it. And we should be. We have seen the abuse of power. We have seen power corrupt. But we just have to say the hope of the Christian, the inheritance that we have, the power that is available to us, it is not intended to corrupt us. This is, you know, I could have a little like a preachery moment here. Oh, it doesn't corrupt. <laughs> it redeems. It does not corrupt us. It refines us. It does not corrupt us. It makes us holy. It does not corrupt us. It makes us blameless. Us. It does not corrupt us. It makes us mourn to the people who we're called to be in Jesus Christ. Oh, do not let the power corrupt you, but let it begin to drive and refine what Jesus is calling you to do. and who you can be in and through him. He says this, it is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. This is something that we say often in faith. It comes out in sermons. It just kind of gets slipped in there all the time. We're always making reference to this reality that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that is work in your life. But friends, don't miss the magnitude and the power of that revelation for us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power, the spirit that is at work in your life. And that is what Paul then sort of just waxes on for several verses. He is always overcome and in awe of this power at work in the life of the Christian as he reflects upon the life of Jesus Christ. The God who is almighty and all powerful humbled himself to take on our human nature. But that power kept creeping back in. That power kept creeping, creeping back in. And Jesus would preach a sermon and people would get saved. And that was power at work. Jesus would encounter somebody blind and he couldn't help but bring healing upon them and give them sight, Because that power kept, in a sense, creeping back in. He'd meet somebody who was held captive, hostage by an evil spirit, and he would set him free because power kept creeping back in. He would encounter people who were hungry, and power would creep in, and he'd feed multitudes. We kept seeing the power creep back in. And then finally, we see Jesus lay down all power, and he lays down his life surrenders it all on that cross, but the power then swooped back in, raised him from the dead. And Paul stands in awe ever and always of this power that rose Jesus from the dead and this power that now is at work in you. My friends, first and foremost, always remember that the power of Jesus Christ at work in you is the power to save. It is the power to save. What we need most of all, what we need more than anything else as people, as human beings, as creatures, we need to be saved. That is the fundamental question of the hour, (laughs) the big issue that we're all dealing with. We all need salvation, friends, and let us always be in awe and reflect on the power of Christ to save us. We need the power to be forgiven, and we stand forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ. We need power to forgive others, and we will find that power in Jesus Christ. We need power to love other people because people are sometimes really hard to love, and you can find it in Jesus Christ. We need power. We need power to bring healing into our lives. And sometimes God works healing miracles. Sometimes we pray for something miraculous to happen, And sometimes it does. Praise God for that power. And sometimes we pray for things to get healed or things to change and it doesn't happen. You know what? He gives us the power to endure. He gives us the power to persevere. He gives us the power to say, not my will, but yours be done. He gives us power to witness so that when we share the good news, people believe and lives are changed. He gives us power, friends. Power. So don't let power become a dirty word. Don't let power corrupt. Let the power of God, the incorruptible power of God, transform your life. Um, I wondered about where to end this message. And uh, I'm going to end it boldly. So Carlos, you can get on up here and get ready because sometimes music makes you bolder. I don't know. It does something to the spirit, does something to the atmosphere, right? So Paul isn't writing any of this out of the blue, remember? There's a context for everything that he has just asked for and prayed for over the people in Ephesus. Remember that Paul journeyed there in his second mission Trip and he encountered the church at Ephesus. He went back then, he spent nearly three years doing ministry there. He then had this painful departure, knowing that he would never see them again, and so he's writing this letter from this jail, writing back to them. So there's a context for Paul's ministry in writing them. And this is how it began. I love Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, on that second missionary journey, Paul is heading to Ephesus. And when he gets there, he finds some believers. And he says, Whoa, wow, believers, what do you believe in? And they're like, Well, we heard from these disciples of this guy named John the Baptist. And they told us all the way that he was pointing to Jesus. So we kind of believed through him, through Jesus, and we repented and got baptized. And he said, So, he's a theologian, you know, he, he reflected upon these things. He, he said, So you got baptized in John's baptism, a baptism of forgiveness. And they said, Yeah, yeah. So he said, so you never got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they said, dude, we never even, I just said, dude, sorry, that's like, that's like, <laughs> not, that's like not religious. He, they said, they're like, we never even heard of the Holy Spirit. He says, well, let me lay my hands on you and pray that the Spirit will come into you. And he did. And it happened. And they received power. <laughs> And the church grew. The church grew so much, it got controversial. The church grew so much, it destroyed the whole icon industry of the Temple of Artemis. I mean, it got crazy when the power of the Holy Spirit came into the people in the church in Ephesus. And it happened when they received the Holy Spirit. And again, as out of our tradition as it might be for many of us, Or as in the tradition as it might be for some of us who are now calling connections home. Paul just said, let me lay my hands on you and let me pray for you. And if you want the power of the Holy Spirit to work in your life, let's just pray that it happens. And so I'm gonna do that weird, awkward thing again, (laughs) which I do every couple weeks here. And I'm just gonna say, if you want power, not my power, oh no.